Welcome to the High Podcast, the space to honor the resilience of the Jewish people and preserve our stories. Our history dates back to ancient Judea, and in the face of expulsion, displacement, enslavement, forced assimilation, ethnic cleansing, occupation, and genocide, we have valiantly clung to and preserved our civilization. We have at every turn resisted the siren song of assimilation to remain a proud people born of our land. The stories we carry with us, both individual and collective, are powerful and profound. These are the missing stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the High Podcast. We have an incredibly special guest this week named David Benger. He is Soviet Jewish in background and is truly one of the most brilliant people that I have ever met in my life. Um, he does a lot of Jewish advocacy work and now also works as a lawyer. That's his main gig. And I'm so excited to hear about his family story and all the insightful information he has to share with us today. So I will pass it to you, David, for a brief introduction before we dive in. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for those kind words. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast and a big fan of everything Sarah and Jake do. Uh, just briefly, uh, so about me, I was born in the U.S. Uh, my family came over from the former Soviet Union in the late 70s. Um, so they were part of that first kind of immigration wave. Well, I suppose it depends on how you count, but the first sort of later Soviet immigration wave. Um, but, uh, I was born here, grew up here, um, spent, uh, my whole childhood in Brighton beach, which is a neighborhood of Brooklyn that is a very large, uh, Soviet expat Jewish community. And, uh, you know, lived, lived here through high school and then went away to college and kind of ended up moving back here now during covid but uh that's that's just temporary so but that's 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 my background in a nutshell amazing thank you so much for starting us off in that way i want to begin i guess before you were born and kind of take this time to document a little bit about your family's history if you could start with like how far back you can trace if you know where your family lived what they like what life was like for them while they were in the Soviet Union and even before that, if you know, I would love to hear. Yeah. So I actually, um, it's something I've been thinking about more recently, but I don't know all that much about my family history. I know that I had at least one great grandfather who was, um, a Soviet officer. He was a field medic, um, and he was shot and killed uh, by the Germans on a battlefield, which you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to target medics. Um, and But I, I don't know much more beyond that um, sort of pre-World War II. I know that uh, both my mom's and my dad's families were evacuated to kind of the western part of the Soviet Union, um, which was not an uncommon story. My mom's family, I should note, is from what was then called Kharkov and is now called Kharkiv in Ukrainian. My dad's family is from Odessa, um, which has a proud Jewish uh, tradition and heritage going back to Tsarist times. Both of them, bo both families took the opportunity to leave the USSR as soon as the gates uh, started opening in the late 70s. I don't know as much about my mom's family story so perhaps I'll start with that um, because I do know more details about my dad's story. M my mom, I, I understand that the, the impetus for them deciding ultimately to leave was because my uncle, my mom's older brother, uh, was getting to be about 16 or 17 years old and the Soviet Union had compulsory military service. And his parents, my grandparents, really did not want him to serve. So they decided it was time to go. You know, there were, there were, there were many other reasons to leave, but that was why they chose to do it right then. They traveled a route um, that was a, a quite popular path at that time out of the USSR, which is the same route that my dad's family took from the Soviet Union to Vienna. A few days of kind of um, staying in Vienna before moving on to the suburbs of Rome. Um, and my mom's family stayed in Rome for, I want to say, about two to three months. And then all, all, all 
refugees leaving the Soviet Union were sort of declaring that they were going to Israel. That was the idea. But in reality, it was really in Rome where they decided where they were going to Israel um, or the U.S. or Canada or elsewhere. Um, and my mom's family ended up going to the U.S. And that's sort of the brief contours of the story. I should know more about that. I feel like I need to sit down with my grandmother this weekend and have a good long conversation about the details. But that's sort of that's sort of the outline. My my dad's family story was uh, quite similar. Um, in this case, however, my dad was the one who was the older sibling, and uh, it wasn't so much the military service; it was the fact that he um, had an aptitude for electronics and technology, and really wanted to go to the local um, competitive technical school for electrical engineering, but he was told by the time that he had submitted his application, they were only required to review applications from five Jews, and he was number six. Um, and they weren't required to accept any. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure they accepted zero, but they were only required to review applications from five. So he didn't even, he couldn't even get his application in the door. And that was, that was a part of the reason why, you know, they said, this is the time. And they had the same path. They spent 10 days, if I recall correctly, in Vienna. And then they spent a much longer time than, than my mom's family in Rome. They were in Rome for nearly a year. Um, it was 10 months or so because my dad's family had had relatives that had gone through this a couple of years before and they had ended up in Montreal. And so what my dad's family really wanted to do was to get to Canada. But uh, because they were traveling with several great grandparents who were elderly and sickly, and Canada had a socialized healthcare system, they were deeply uninterested in taking on people who would be a drain on, you know, the socialized medical care system. So they were trying to make it work with Canada for a while. It ended up being impossible. Um, so they moved to New York instead. And in New York, both families settled in. Um, First in Farrakaway, um, which was kind of an, it was sort of an immigrant enclave. I, I was, I, I hesitate to say um, that it was a, a sort of tenement facility because it wasn't. It was nothing like what the immigrants fresh off the boats from Ellis Island had to face. Um, but it was also not great conditions. Um, and there were serious problems with cleanliness and clean water and, and things like that. But uh, eventually, both and and that's that's sort of where my mom and my dad met they were both living there um and eventually both uh, sides of the family made their way to brighton beach in brooklyn so you were born and raised in brighton beach and i think you referenced earlier that that is a pretty russian jewish community um could you talk about what life was like growing up there were there aspects of jewish culture that you grew up with were there aspects of russian culture what was the neighborhood like um and kind of, I guess, what was the path that you foraged from there? Why did you end up where you are today? Does it have anything to do with where you grew up? Um, I guess this is a bit more now that you're in the picture. What's your Jewish story? Yeah, um, I grew, I, I so I never attended school really in the Brighton Beach neighborhood. Um, I always went to school kind of outside of the neighborhood. Uh, through middle school, I had the pleasure of attending a Montessori school from kindergarten through eighth grade, uh, where I had an absolutely fantastic education. Um, and that was several neighborhoods over. And then for high school, um, I went to high school in Brooklyn Heights, which for folks who know Brooklyn, it's sort of almost the opposite corner of Brooklyn. Um, and it was a 45 minute commute on the subway to school um, every morning. So, you know, I didn't have very many friends growing up in that community, um, with the exception of, you know, cousins and family members. I also, uh, growing up, I played ice hockey very competitively. And so I spent a lot of time out on Long Island um, because New York City doesn't, doesn't you know, very have, didn't at the time at least have very good hockey. Um, and it's growing a little bit now. But at the time, and still to this day, Long Island or New Jersey is, was where it's at um, if you want to play hockey at a serious level. And so that's where I spent a lot of my time. And I used to spend my summers up in Canada at various training camps. Um, so my my Jewish community, so I didn't really have like a community that was centered around my neighborhood growing up. 
the synagogue that I attended was basically across the street from my house. It was sort of like diagonally behind, you know, the block that I grew up on. Um, and that was a Chabad synagogue. And uh, it was really not until the later years of high school that I was introduced to other strains of Judaism. I kind of, growing up, I'd understood that there was, you know, traditional orthodoxy. Um, and there were some folks who lived their lives according to that traditional orthodoxy. And then there were some folks like my family who, you know, wanted that shot of Judaism during the high holy days or whenever it was, you know, by my bar mitzvah, for example, was at the Chabad synagogue done in a, in a traditional way. But otherwise, you know, if you didn't live your life according to those standards, you sort of had to reconcile yourself with uh, the hypocrisy of your Jewish identity. And we were sort of okay with that. Like, you know, there's a sense of like, I understand that I'm not living my Jewish life the correct way. I'm not living up to these ideals that I see my rabbi living up to. Um, that's the trade-off that I made, and, and I get it. And this, the the idea that, you know, is espoused by other strains of Judaism, that there are other ways to live your life Jewishly, or there are other ways to consider something kosher or non-kosher, was completely foreign to me growing up. So, yes, so as I mentioned, I went through a, you know, very, very traditional um, Chabad bar mitzvah. Um, which was a very, very steep learning curve for me. Um, I had to learn the Hebrew alphabet from scratch to do it. And uh, I still have a very, very close relationship with my rabbi who, who helped prepare me for that. Um, it was uh, one of, I was one of his first students. He had just received his rabbinic ordination um, and he, you know, was, was excited to do it. He now has, I think, six or seven kids um, and uh, just a wonderful guy. And so that was my Jewish story sort of through middle school and through high school. I became more and more interested in these questions in high school. I spent pretty much every summer in high school. Um, by, by the age of sort of 15, 16 years old, I was kind of taking a step back from hockey. And I spent all my summers exploring something Jewish. And I, I did uh, various uh, pluralistic um, Jewish summer programs, both in Israel and in the United States. Got to know all different kinds of Jews, all different kinds of worship and prayer, um, different approaches to Shabbat, um, different approaches to various rituals, and just really, really became interested in, in, in learning everything that sort of uh, stands as the foundation um, for these various approaches to Judaism. I studied academic Judaic studies in college. And then after college, I had the pleasure of spending, I was, I was working for two years after college. And during that time, I was very early on, I was introduced to a rabbi with whom I really clicked, who's a modern Orthodox rabbi. Um, and I spent maybe six or seven, sometimes eight days a month at his house uh, doing various kinds of study, um, mostly Bible study, some Talmud. And I did that for two years. After those two years, I spent the summer in Israel um, at a pluralistic Beit Midrash called Pardes, which I strongly recommend. Really fantastic. And that was really kind of the apex of my Jewish learning. And then I spent a year uh, in grad school in China. During law school, uh, I had the pleasure of doing uh, a Jewish law reading group every semester, which was quite intensive and very high level. A lot of the students in that class had spent years and years at various yeshivot uh, before law school. Um, and that's sort of, that's sort of my, my Jewish journey up to today. Okay, David, thank you so much. Quite often I've found that from my experience, friends' experience and hearing other people talk, you know, amongst our community uh, who are Soviet, come from Soviet Jewish backgrounds is quite often we tend to be quite secular through our parents or our grandparents. And the reason for this is because of the, the treatment of Jews under the Soviet Union in Russia and these places. And my question to you would be, just to explain for people that don't know, is how Jews were treated within the Soviet Union, within Ukraine, within Russia. You know, these places that we all know as the, the Soviet region is how did Jews live for those that don't know, under these regimes? So I do believe that a lot 
um, a, a large percentage of the Soviet Jewish expat community is quite secular today, especially the Soviet Jewish Ashkenazi expat community. Um, the Soviet Jewish Sephardim, I think, have held on tra to tradition a little bit more. Um, the Jews from Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, and a lot of them have, you know, for, for example, a lot of them won't eat uh, certain foods. And that's partially, I guess, suppose because they are also from Muslim-majority countries where there wasn't pork or, or that kind of thing. Um, but even but even pork aside, there was at least a kind of understanding that dietary restriction was a way of worship. But but if we're talking about my family, which came from Ukraine, um, I think there are two reasons why so many of them are secular today in um, in the West. And one of those reasons is certainly the Soviet Jewish experience in the Soviet Union. But but another part of it is also the particular experience of immigration. Um, and I, I kind of want to get into both. So there are a few things more painful to me um, as a child of the Soviet Jewish experience than seeing Jews um, use the hammer and sickle uh, as a symbol of liberalism, liberation, freedom, of, of anything positive, really. Because the hammer and sickle, the Soviet flag, really stood for the oppression of all minorities, um, and chief among them were Jews. And there was such an extraordinary amount of deep-seated anti-Semitism among the Soviet Jewish leadership, including, uh, sorry, among the Soviet leadership. There's a deep-seated anti-Semitism among the Soviet leadership, including internalized anti-Semitism among many of the Jews that served that leadership. Um, I think you cannot tell the story of Soviet Jewry without telling that story as well. But, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the fact that my father was not allowed to apply to his institution of choice but that was that was really a drop in the bucket. I mean, my my father, my grandfathers, all of them, um, you know, experienced being beat up and various other violence uh, purely for being Jewish. There were mass purges. Millions and millions of people were sent to camps. Um, uh, they're 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 referred to as gulags, but I've never understood why people use the Russian word for it. Um, when you call it a gulag, all it means is it's something that a person can't imagine. There really were concentration camps. That's what they were, um, and most people, by and large, were sent there to die. There's you know many many instances of Soviet Jewish of Soviet history that were kind of anchored by deep anti-Semitism. One thinks of uh, the doctor's plot. Um, where many of the doctors of the Soviet Union, who were predominantly Jewish, uh, were all sentenced to death because Stalin kind of developed this irrational fear uh, that he was being poisoned by his doctor. It's it sort of over and over again. It was a horrible place to be Jewish. It, it really, really was. Um, and when people hold it up as some kind of example of uh, freedom for all people, which of course was the slogan, but it was never the reality. Um, second point, um, a lot of the families that, that went through the immigration period that my family went through were supported and were, you know, still remain to this day extremely grateful to the American Jews and other uh, diaspora Soviet Jews that made it possible. No question about it, um, including uh, traditional Orthodox Jews. That being said, what happened to a lot of families, um, and I think this is a story that really hasn't been told but really needs to be told, was their children were offered free education um, in traditional Orthodox yeshivas. And the families took that offer because the neighborhoods that they lived in, whether it be Far Rockaway or others, Queens, you know, what have you, had then and still have to this very day terrible public school systems. And so they took those offers and, you know, not a few weeks went by before little boys were coming home and asking like their sister why she dressed like a whore or why mom was like cooking goyish food or how they could possibly ever live in a house like this. On the one hand, these families were sort of made secular through decades of Soviet rule. The tradition sort of pushed out of them. On the one hand, here they were kind of face to face with traditional Judaism. And what was this traditional Judaism doing? It was tearing their families apart. Um, and I don't know enough about this story, frankly, to know who's to blame for it. I don't know what could have been done differently. I don't know 
how you know how exactly the the, the process of these families being so hurt you know by by uh, their own children um, could have been fixed but I do know that it happened and I know that it has made a serious contribution to the Soviet Jewish families in America today. And it is not uncommon, sadly, tragically, it is not uncommon to hear families say to their kids, better you should marry someone who is not Jewish than marry someone observant. Uh, because at least if you marry someone who's not Jewish, I, you know, the kid's dad or mom or whatever, would still be able to eat in your home or you would be able to eat in my home or something like that. If you marry someone observant, then our family gets ripped apart. Um, and that's kind of a, a sad footnote to the Soviet Jewish story, but I, it hasn't been told. And I think it ought to be. Yeah. I think that's a really important component. And I personally had never heard that before. So thank you for sharing that. That uh, is, um, a lot of what we're trying to do here is a lot of, um, I guess, minor sentences in the bigger Jewish story do get erased, but obviously they were very formative and like catalyzed whole new chapters for people and they just seem to be under discussed in many sectors so thank you for sharing that with us I think I want to dive in now a little bit more into Russian Jewish culture um, specifically in terms of food and music I think that those are kind of um it's so interesting because a lot of Jewish life throughout the diaspora is hallmarked by pluralism. And I think one of those ways that it's most evident is that we live similar but different experiences in the food that we ate and the mu music that we consumed. So if you could go a little bit into depth about, you know, what traditional Jewish dishes were in your home and what music was around, et cetera, I would love to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. Also, Jake, I don't know if you've ever been to Brooklyn or to Brighton Beach, but uh, I'm sure you would find it interesting. Um, and Sarah, you've, you've got to come up as well. I would be happy to take you around. Um, it's a little bit of like, um, I describe it to folks as like a Soviet version of colonial Williamsburg. It's kind of a, a past time, like a, a past world frozen in time. Um, it's, it's, it's bizarre. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of food, and music, there wasn't uh, very much Jewish music. It was a lot of like um, Soviet music or like 90s Russian pop music um, that my family tended to listen to. A lot of those artists are Jewish, were Jewish. Um, and uh, it was interesting to see that kind of permeate some of their work. You know, I don't know. It's... Um, there are a couple, of a couple of musicians that I can think of um, who were kind of more open about their Jewishness. There was a singer named um, Yefim Alexandrov who did a whole show about where he like tried to recreate the shtetl. That was his concert. Um, and he had a mix of Yiddish, Russian, and um, actually, I don't know if he had Hebrew music. He may have. Certainly Yiddish and Russian. There was a, a Soviet singer named Alexander Rosenbaum who had a song which for some reason is now very difficult to find, but it used to be very popular. The song, 90% of it was in Russian, but the chorus was Yom Velayla Hakol Beseder Be Yerushalayim, which means day and night, everything will be okay in Jerusalem. Um, but most of the rest of the song was in Russian. It was about Jerusalem, but most of it was in Russian. And he was, you know, A-list celebrity for sure. We, you know, when we, when we, when my family came here, we sort of, got into the more American Jewish music a bit more. Like my grandfather loves the Barry sisters, um, but they'd never heard of them in the Soviet Union. Huge Barbara Streisand fans, obviously. And as far as the food, it's, it's difficult for me to disassociate Russian Jewish food from Russian food. I don't exactly know what's Jewish about it. And uh, I, I sort of, I had traveled to former Soviet countries before, but it was just a few years ago. It was my first time actually traveling to Russia. And I thought maybe traveling to Russia, it would immediately become clear to me, like what food I had at home that you don't see in Russia. Um, and I found no such food. <laughs> um, it was, it was all just, it's all just Russian food. Yeah. I, I, w I, w I wish I could sort of tell you about kind of, you know, everything 
Jewish about the food, like everything that would go on our Passover Seder table or anything that, you know, my grandmother learned to cook various pastries with apple for Rosh Hashanah, for example. Those are all recipes she picked up here from her colleagues at work. Um, so, I, you know, I'm sure I'm sure there are old Russian Jewish recipes for this kind of thing. I know there are. There are whole cookbooks of them. But they, had, they were so kind of washed out of the Soviet Jewish experience that by the time my grandmother was learning how to cook, you know, it was really just more traditional Russian food. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I so I know Jake is actually Soviet Jewish. I have Russian and Ukrainian Jewish ancestry, but it's from Tsarist time. So it was like right at the turn of everything. Um, and definitely, I feel like it's a completely different experience. And on the note of um, completely different experiences, do you, you spoke a little bit about Im how you were a part of the first immigration wave. Do you see your experience or your family's experience, I should say, coming here in the 70s as different from the Jewish people who came later on from the Soviet Union when there really was the whole free Soviet Jewry movement? And if you could dive into that a little bit, I would be very interested to hear. I am so glad you asked that question um, because it is extremely different. Um, there are some, you know, some shared characteristics, of course, some things in common, etc. One of the biggest differences is people who came in sort of the late 80s through to the early 90s um, came with money. Not not always a lot of money, but with money. Like they were able to come in and they were able to pay rent on an apartment, um, which is something my family could not do. Um, and um, you can always tell. I, I, was, I was talking to a friend of mine about this. I found that the way you can tell... When someone says they're a Soviet Jew, and I, I wonder if this will check out with Jake as well, but you can always tell what wave of immigration they came in from when you ask them who they root for, you know, in the World Cup or the Olympics or whatever. Because, um, you know, 99 times out of 100, someone from my parents' wave or their kids will say, I root for whoever plays against Russia. Um, often, often the folks who came in during the 90s will root for Russia. Um, and uh, that, you know, that's, that's a, I see, it seems trivial because we're talking about sports here, but it's actually a huge mindset difference. My, so my, my grandparents, especially, to a certain extent, though, even my parents um, still, still kind of map on the Soviet Union of the Russia today, of, 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 they map the Soviet Union onto the Russia of today. And there's a lot to be said for that, certainly, in terms of kind of how the way politics works and the way, you know, everything's about who you know, etc. But uh, I was talking to my grandmother the other day um, about this friend that she has in Russia still, who she writes letters to back and forth. And I asked her, like, would you consider, like, calling her on WhatsApp? And... Uh, my grandmother was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, when I lived in Boston, you and I video called on WhatsApp. Like, you know how to use the software. Like, would you consider calling her? And she was like, what do you mean? They don't have WhatsApp in the Soviet Union. <laughs> and it just, it like did not even occur to her that time had moved forward in this part of the world and that they also have smartphones today in Russia. Like it completely didn't. And I, I am fairly confident that any generation, irrespective of the age of the person, if they were part of the generation that immigrated in the 90s, they would not have had that cognitive dissonance. It's just a different approach. That's really fascinating. Wow. Very illuminating. And I had never even thought to start conceptualizing how to make that distinction. That's really interesting. Um. Another question that I have for you is about your work now. I know that you're incredibly active in the Jewish advocacy sphere, but obviously your full-time work is technically, allegedly, as an attorney. Um, and I would love to know how your Jewish upbringing or your Jewish values has informed your work, both in terms of the Jewish advocacy work and um, the lawyer law work you do now like was that in some way intertwined with your desire to go to law school and pursue this path or is it kind of a different set of interests 
So I wouldn't say I'm incredibly active. I'm no Sarah Simon or Jake Marlowe, let's be honest. Um, but I, I, I try to do what I can. Um, no, this kind of anti-anti-Semitism work was not really an animating principle when I decided to go to law school. Not really. Um, I was interested in civil rights work and I was interested in international criminal law more broadly. Before law school, I'd spent some time interning at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Um, I'd worked at the uh, Genocide Tribunal, the extraordinary, uh, extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia. So this kind of international civil rights work was really, really interesting to me. Um, and I was interested in anti-terror um, investigations. That was the work I was doing between college and law school, uh, between college and grad school, rather. Um, large white collar crime type work, terrorism financing. So that's, that's what really brought me to law school. Um, and it was in law school when I first came across, it just so happened that two of my classmates in law school were the founders of this organization you may have heard of called Open Hillel. Um, and Open Hillel is basically an organization that says Hillel, uh, which is the organization that services many Jewish students on university campuses across the United States. Hillel, they say, is far too Zionist far too much in Israel's pocket, and we need to create an alternative that is called Open Hillel for students who believe in a, who believe that their Jewish identity drives them uh, to be pro-Palestine and to be anti-Zionist. So this was, the, this was Open Hillel. Two of its founders were in my class, and I was very confused by this. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I knew that there, were rise, there was rising anti-Semitism on college campuses. Uh, but what really surprised me during my first year of law school, and this is 2017, was this new turn in how much of this rising anti-Semitism was being suborned and supported by Jewish students. This, I think, is new. Um, and it's something I worry a lot about. Both of these women were Jewish, are Jewish. And that sort of, I kind of became interested in that. Um, and I became friends sort of at the same time with a third year student um, who was graduating, who was president of a small organization called the Alliance for Israel. Um, she asked me if I wanted to take it over. Um, I agreed. In the end, actually, I didn't end up taking it over. Someone else took it over and I became like the events chair, which is what I wanted. I wanted to like be the person who brought people in. And we had some great events with various Israeli speakers. Uh, it was a law school, so we've tried to focus as much on Israel and the laws of war, um, Israel and like various legal questions. We had a great, great talk from the chief public defender in the territories. So he's an Israeli Jewish, actually Orthodox guy, who is a public defender in the Palestinian territories, chiefly represents Palestinian kids who are arrested for like, graffiti or, you know, whatever other small-time offenses. And that's what he does. So, you know, we had talks like this. And routinely, we would get protested. Um, and uh, we we invited uh, Basim Eid to speak. Um, and Basim Eid is a Palestinian man who speaks very eloquently about the effect that the BDS movement has on Palestinian jobs. Um, and he, he, when we invited him, um, we normally invite whenever we had an event, we asked for a, uh, university police presence. When we invited him, he all, he said, in addition to the university police presence, we also want the town police to be there as well. So we had them there. Um, and this is how I sort of became connected to Elisa Lewin, um, who is a lawyer practicing in DC and works for an organization called the Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under the Law. And she, um, as well as her father, have dedicated, uh, has dedicated her career to fighting for Jews in the courts of law of the United States in every possible capacity, um, whether it be religious freedom issues, criminal issues, any time where she feels Jews are unfairly targeted for something, uh, Elisa Lewin is there. And... Um, I, you know, got to know her. I was became the campus chapter president for her organization, uh, and increasingly, I'm sort of hoping to model my career as much as possible in what she has done. Amazing, David. Thank you. Um, 
I'm going to be an interesting question for you. And um, obviously there's no right or wrong answer. It's just, I want to get your opinion on something. And, you know, from speaking to so, so many Jews worldwide, they've come from the different places in the diaspora, the Jewish experience is very different. And quite often I've found that uh, depending on where they are now, they view a lot of things very differently to maybe how their, their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents would have viewed things. And in America, in the UK, in the West, you know, identity politics, politics is a really, really big, prominent thing amongst younger people, the younger generations now. And I'm wondering if you could delve into a bit about in terms of how Soviet Jews would identify themselves, you know, maybe they're not the most religious, but is the Jewish identity, okay, I'm ethnically Jewish, I'm part of the tribe, I'm indigenous to Judea. Is this a strong point or is it more they would consider themselves American or English or wherever they may be today? That's a great question. Um, I see very, very strong, very ardent Zionism from the Soviet Jewish community. Um, I don't know that I would have ever heard the Soviet Jewish community use the language of indigeneity. Um, I don't know if perhaps that's at least the folks that I'm, that I know maybe aren't familiar with that language. Um, but they sort of understand Israel to be the Jewish state. I think for many of them, because they're not so religious, uh, it isn't so much motivated in, you know, the story of the Western Wall or the various other biblical heartland arguments um, that is Israel. It has more to do with um, just a much closer temporal closeness to lived experience and anti-Semitism and the acceptance of the reality that a Jewish state is necessary to protect Jewish lives. In the U.S., at least, uh, most Soviet Jews tend to be quite conservative. Very, I mean, you know, in, in my neighborhood, uh, went something like 85 to 90 percent for Trump in the last election in 2020. Um, and partially that had to do with um, a feeling, which in my estimation is mistaken, uh, that Trump was an asset to the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Um, but this this was the understanding. Partially, it was also a fear, Ev like everything that communism represents is evil, and therefore the left is closer to communism than the right is. So we vote on the right, not on the left, so we can be as far away from communism as possible. Um, and also increasingly, which is surprising in New York, but increasingly, um, Soviet Jews are getting really into the Second Amendment issue and are siding with conservatives on that as well. And I think that also is connected to rising anti-Semitism um, and the feeling that as much as we need the Jewish state to protect ourselves, we also need to be arming ourselves. Um, and just to clarify, the Second Amendment issue that I'm talking about is the debate in the United States about whether um, Americans should be able to carry firearms. Um, and increasingly, I'm finding the Soviet Jews are saying, yes, um, we should be armed. We should be able to protect ourselves and our families and our homes. Um, and again, a lot of that, I think, comes from serious kind of, for some inherited, for some first-person experience trauma due to anti-Semitism. Um, but to go back to the original question, I think there is a strong sense of Zionism, very high um, birthright participation rates. Um, there's an, an organization called Rage, which I've always thought was kind of an angry name, but it's uh, Rage with a J, it stands for Russian American Jewish Experience. Um, and they have tons of their own birthright trips that they lead, um, or rather, well, they lead 10-day trips to Israel that are free. I don't know if they're birthright associated, um, but there's high participation in that as well. Big, big turnout at Salute to Israel parades and that kind of thing. Um, and again, yeah, a lot of that disassociated from the religious connection to the land and very much, I think, as a response to anti-Semitism. Sure. 
I want to dive a little bit deeper into the distinction you just made, because I think it's really contrasted a lot to what we heard last week from Jacob, who was talking about the Ethiopian Jewish connection to the land of Israel. Do you think that, um, which he very explicitly said was very much motivated by this indigenous identity and this longing for millennia to return. Um, do you think that a lot of the Soviet Jewish conception has to do with the cultural genocide that was happening and the forced assimilation in many ways? Or do you think that it's just, um, you know, they've found another way in their communal lives, or I should say your communal lives to explain the interconnectedness of our people using language that was available to them that maybe other communities had different access to. And I hope that made sense. So I think every element of your question is sort of in play, but I think there's also a selection bias. Um, I, I don't want to put words in Yaakov's mouth, but I think there's a likelihood that had he gone through a similar immigration process, had he gone from Ethiopia to Austria to Rome, and then had the choice of either Israel or North America, he would have chosen Israel and it would not have been a hard answer for him. Right. And there is a Soviet Jewish community in Israel, like in a substantial one um, represented in government, um, you know, and many of them have taken on this kind of datiliomi religious Zionism as well. Um, what for the most part, while already in Israel, not so much beforehand, but a lot of them kind of perhaps felt a kind of connection to Israel uh, that maybe my family or other families that ended up elsewhere did not feel. Um, the other thing is, you know, Sarah, you mentioned that your family left sometime before the revolution, before the communist revolution. Um, there, there was a certainly a band, substantial waves of Russian, Ukrainian, what have you, Jews. Um, who went to Israel then, right? Obviously, one, one of the great founding fathers of Zionism was from the very same town that my father's family is from, from Odessa, Vladimir Jabotinsky. So the, the, the families who, like, in their lineage have this kind of ardent Zionism um, may, may, have, may just be different families than the ones who ended up in Brooklyn in the 80s and 90s. Um, so... I actually don't know what the Aliyah rates are for Soviet Jewish communities who have, who have moved elsewhere. Um, one of my, you know, very good, my dad's very, very dear friend's daughter um, went on birthright, uh, fell in love with the Israeli soldier who was staffing the trip um, and is now married to him and lives in Israel. Um and uh, nobody in a million years would have ever guessed that she was making Aliyah. Like she, she went on birthright to party. Like there was no question about that. Um, uh, but uh, I think I think it's probably fair to say that a lot of this yearning, this yearning for Israel, is it's in our prayers, right? It's in um, yeah, it's in our prayers. That that's like that's where it is. It's in the Sidur. Um, and if you haven't prayed for a couple of generations, the sort of yearning for Israel goes away a little, little bit in, in the sense of the kind of yearning you're talking about, not the yearning for a safe place somewhere where Jews will never be persecuted, which I think is what the yearning for Israel is now in most of the Soviet expat communities. I've got um, a bit of a fun one for you, David. So... Obviously, I, me personally, I didn't grow up in America. I've never had anything to do with America. I've been on holiday there. I've got friends there. I've spent a lot of time there. But from speaking to people, I learned about the Jewish mob in America. And I know that uh, the Soviet Jews had a big involvement with the Jewish mob. Um, and although it may not be the most positive uh, representation we can give to our community, uh, is still part of our history in America. So I was wondering if uh, you wanted to speak about anything to do with that, anything that you know, um, just because I think it's a bit of a fun one to, to get into. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, right? Like, if you watch um, this very popular American crime 
TV show called Law and Order, whenever uh, there's something to do with the Russians uh, or the Russian mob, it's generally in Brighton Beach, very heavily Russian-speaking Jewish community. It has increasingly become more of a home for Russian-speaking Muslim expats from Central Asia, um, which in my view has actually made the food somewhat better, but there's disagreement about this. Um, but uh, for sure, I mean, and, and this tradition of kind of organized crime in the Russian Jewish community, it goes back to the old country. Um, uh, there's a very famous mobster also from my dad's hometown of Odessa called um, Mishka Yaponchik or uh, Mikey the Jap because um, apparently he had partially uh, Asian ancestry and so people would make fun of him and say he looked Japanese um, and he was a, a mob boss um, and he had a bit of a um, like uh, oh my goodness uh, Robin Hood is the word I was looking for he had a bit of a Robin Hood reputation um, he would sort of you know, it was really more kind of the officials and the rich folk who feared him, um, whereas it was the poor, oppressed Jews that tended to benefit from his benevolence. But nevertheless, um, if you crossed him, you know, violence would ensue. And that was understood. Um, and that's that tradition is not foreign um, to the Soviet Jewish story. And uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely restaurants uh, right on the waterfront in, in Brighton Beach that are historically known as, uh, you know, being owned and operated by the mafia. Um, I don't have much details on how it operates uh, that I'm willing to share on this uh, recording. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's certainly, certainly, it's certainly a part of life. Um, just like, just like it would be if you lived in Little Italy um, or just like it is in Chinatown, I would you know, I'd be frank, um, in the 90s, certainly, um, I would be hesitant to open up a small business or something like that in Brighton Beach um, if I did not have contacts with the right people um, who could, uh, you know, provide the right security and protection. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, I wonder if you can clear something up then for me. So I've recently heard, and maybe you can tell me if it's true or false, that the traditional mobster dress, the suit, the very, very sharp dress suit, was not an Italian mafia thing. It was a Russian Jewish mobster dress, and they took it from us. So <laughs> if you could confirm or deny. I will confirm. I don't have any reason to confirm, but I'm going to go ahead and confirm because that sounds like an awesome story. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. Wow. So much to process. <laughs> really and truly. I think um, we're going to begin winding up the episode because this has just been so wonderful and probably a lot for people to process just like me. But before we really get into the final question that we ask every guest, I do want to ask you if people want to learn a bit more about Soviet Jewish history in particular or Russian Jewish history more broadly, um, or I guess less broadly, um, are there any specific authors you would direct them to or works by those authors? I know Nathan Sharansky is quite prolific, um, but if there's anyone else, I would love to hear from you. Uh, yeah, Nathan Sharansky is great. Um, I also think there's some virtue in hearing kind of fictional interpretation of these stories. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Gary Steingart. Um, his books are hilarious, but kind of in their absurdism, they really kind of point to the picture of the Soviet Jewish expat experience. Um, David Bismoskis is a bit of a more serious kind of literary author and has also excellent short stories that really tell the story, in his case, of the Russian, Jewish, Canadian experience. Um, for a more journalistic perspective, I would, without reservation, recommend Avital Chizik Goldschmidt. Um, she is absolutely phenomenal, and I'm such a big fan of hers. Um, 
as well as Isabella Taborowski. Um, I'm trying to think of kind of more academic work that's interesting for this. Um, there hasn't been like a really good academic text that tells the story of the Soviet Jews that I can think of. There's kind of a, a lacuna in literature there. Um, okay, David, thank you. So we're going to wrap it up now. And like Sarah said, this is the question that we ask. Who will our guests to come on? And we end it with the question, what does being Jewish mean to you? So being Jewish means, uh, when it, whenever I think of the question, what does being Jewish mean? I am always immediately transported to Rabbi Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs' YouTube video. Um, and so in that spirit, being Jewish means inheriting an extraordinary tradition of excellence in every capacity um, in the face of remarkable oppression. Um, I think of, for example, the story of a Barbanel um, who, I don't remember the details of his biography, but he lived in kind of the, the Renaissance, the later Middle Ages Renaissance period. And he basically like became chief treasurer to the king, I want to say in Spain or something like that. And they found out he was Jewish. He ran away, um, made a like completely new identity, new life for himself, rose to the ranks, became chief treasurer for one of the heads of one of the Italian city-states. And they learned he was Jewish. He ran away, built a whole new life for himself. I mean, it's 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 such um, an emblematic story in terms of the Jewish experience of how in the face of extraordinary oppression, we continue to fight hard uh, to create success. That to me um, is being Jewish. You know, it's to some degree, it's it's fighting, it's it's arguing, um, it's uh, debating with God for sure, debating with one another, uh, but it's always in the service of trying to push through and trying to make something better. Thank you so much for listening to the Chai podcast this week. We have new episodes that come out every Thursday. If you want to be a part of preserving Jewish memory, both individual and collective, you can find us on Instagram at the underscore Chai underscore pod. Or if you have a story of your own to share, you can send us an email at podcast.chai at gmail.com. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Have a wonderful rest of your day and Am Yisrael Chai.